to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, disaster planning, crisis management, COVID, anything that can help you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Longtime listeners, you'll know that I was uh, presenting at the recent Business Continuity Institute Hybrid World, I think I got the title right, in London, beginning of November 2022. And I was lucky enough to attend a few sessions as well, and I thought it would be nice if I could get a couple of these speakers to come on the show. And today, I'm lucky enough to have one of those speakers and a session that I really enjoyed and thought everyone here might be interested in as well. So I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Liz Royal as we talk about the topic, Building Emotional Resilience and Creating Effective Human Recovery Processes for Situations. Dr. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Uh, I, I really enjoyed your session. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It was well attended too. It looked like a full yes. house. Yes, people seemed really engaged. It, it felt different this year. Um, I've, I've talked about um, the subject on many occasions, but I got a sense this time that people are finally getting it and finally thinking, oh, that's relevant to us. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah. really nice to see. Yeah. Yeah, I've got, I've got a comment about that, but I wanted uh, Okay. Get get uh, get people familiar with who Dr. Liz Royal is. Can you take a minute or two to talk about yourself, what you do, and how you got into this crazy industry of ours? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's certainly working with trauma and crisis mental health is definitely uh, a challenging place to be. It's not where I set out to be. Um, I, I I basically I set out my my helping career working in crisis settings in advice agencies the courts, and I just got a bit hooked on that sense of actually you can make a really big difference to somebody's life by doing the right thing at the right time, and I ended up doing some mental health qualifications. So I am a, a qualified mental health mental health practitioner, psychotherapist. And then I got a, a job um, working with the um, a big, a big police service of, over in the United Kingdom. And I was just thrown in at the deep end. And I had to respond to all kinds of uh, crises and trauma within police officers and staff. I um, started out then as a continual student, um, did my, my master's, my PhD, did loads of hands-on experience um, and I think I, it's safe to say I've dealt with pretty much every kind of incident that you could ever hope not to be involved in <laughs> um, and so I, I've, I've actually been in the field now for over 25 years and I work now primarily with organizations um, I work with our national health service in the UK um, the Council of the European Union, uh, local governments, and um, big big corporations, big retailers. So right across the the board, and and I'm passionate about trauma. So I, I do um, lots of writing. I've written several books, lots of presenting because I just feel so. People, education is so key in people managing this correctly and there are so many myths and misconceptions i'm on a bit of a a passion to change that (laughs) so yes that's that's me in a nutshell really well i I said i had a comment uh and one thing that i've noticed is for years and years excuse me we organizations uh, communities we were talking about 
you know, plans and processes and wanting mm-hmm. to get certification, especially in business continuity mm-hmm. and uh, meeting regulations and things like that. Like it was very uh, plan and, and, and program focused. And yeah. I think uh, your session, what I noticed because it was a full house is that people are now starting to realize that it's not just the plan, it's the people behind the plan too. And I think that mm. even though organizations say, you know, people are our greatest asset and all this and that, and they still don't bring people to the forefront. It's always the plan and, you know, all this other stuff. And mm. I noticed when during your talk, it's people were starting to realize that, you know, all those plans and processes, they mean nothing without the people behind them. Mm, absolutely. And, and I've worked with a lot of organizations in building up a strategy and, you know, people, they might get me to come in and say, actually, can, can, you, can you advise us on how we might deal with big incidents or, you know, we're, we're, our staff are exposed to trauma on a fairly regular basis, you know, what do we do? And this, one of the things that they, they don't actually start with at the beginning is why, why are we doing this? They think, oh, it's a tick in the box. We need to do something. We need to get a process. Mm. We need to box it off. So the first step is always looking at, okay, what, what, what is it you're trying to achieve? What are you trying to fix? You know, what is the problem you've got? And just step it back a little bit. But the other really common things that I see is that they, they don't engage the people who are going to be actually part of that plan. Yeah. And that might sound as though it's quite a simple thing to do, you know, get everybody to have a bit of buy-in, you know. But what they don't realise is the very subject of mental health, particularly trauma and crisis, the sharp end of mental health. Human beings don't want to talk about it. They have an inherent, yeah. So so, so we, we do, I, I've, over the years, I've done loads of training with audiences who are, quite hostile to the concept, um, you know, I think in, in particular groups of uh, quite macho cultures, um, you know, police firearms officers are one of my, one, one of the most demanding um, audiences to, to actually get the message across. But it, if you start looking at why that is, then you can start to dismantle some of those beliefs and some of the defenses and actually get them to think, oh, yes, I do need to do this and I can see why. And organizations that don't do that actually are just, again, what we, the phrase is lip service. You know, they're just mm-hmm. saying, they're talking, they're just talking the talk, but they're not actually doing anything. So understanding that people don't want to talk about it because they don't think it's relevant to them. They think, oh, you know, it's um, if you've got an issue, then you shouldn't be in this job. Or they are frightened. And I was just going to ask that. Is it fear? Yeah. Does fear come in there somewhere? Yeah. And that can be, it can be fear of opening a can of worms and not knowing what to do with it. So let's just mm. leave it to the professionals. You know, we, or we don't want anything to do with any of that. But it can also be fear of their own stuff. So if you've got people who are carrying, you know, unresolved issues, unresolved trauma themselves, and you're suddenly asking them to start thinking about the staff, that is really fearful for them because they think, I can't empathize with my staff because the lid will come off on my own stuff. Mm. And there, so, so there's those levels of fear, but there's also the stereotypes around what mental health is, what mental health professionals are. Um, you know, people fear that we're just wrapping people up in cotton wool, that, you know, we're making them soft mm-hmm. um, and, you know, they should just toughen up. So, so unless we can deal with all of these attitudes, we're not going to engage people. And that's always got to be part of your strategy. Is looking at okay, how do we do this? Um, it's the, the, those kind of nuances are so important. It's not just a case of right, let's get a process, let's do some training. We know what we're supposed to do, and you know, and and that's that box ticked. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've, I'm kind of experiencing a little bit of that at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. you know, let's, I'm asking some questions and some. People that I'm working with are, oh, well, that, we'll deal with that later. 
but I know I, you know, I've been doing this 26 years. I know if I talk about it later, we're going to have issues right up Mm -hmm. until then. And Mm -hmm. we're going to have to have these conversations again. So really all you're doing is snow plowing and pushing it down the road. Um, I've worked with some leadership too, who also don't want to talk about uh, mental health or the impacts of disasters because Mm -hmm. they say, Oh, and and I have actually sat with the CIO many, many years ago who said, you know, I, I know what's going to happen and how we're going to deal with things, but I don't want the staff to get upset. So we're not going to, we don't want to talk to them about the, this kind of stuff. Mm. You know? um, does that relate back to the fear or is it just simply, I'd rather not deal with any of this stuff. Just give me the plan. Yeah, it's, it's, it's natural avoidance. You know, and again, if you look at why people do it, avoiding something that's not pleasant is actually, it's not only a natural human response, but it's actually part of our survival response. So it's really deeply embedded in our psyche, not not to deal with anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So so what we have to do, our, our role then is to try and make it comfortable. And it's comparable with making a will, isn't it? You know, nobody wants to make a will and think yeah. about, okay, yes, what's going to happen when I die? And yet everybody's going to die. And so it has to be framed in a way that it feels like a positive thing. It feels empowering. It feels like taking control. And I think because people don't tend to feel in control of the whole issue of mental health because they don't understand it, then that fuels that avoidance. You know, we'll, we'll deal with it when it happens. Or the classic one for this is, well, we, we've got an employee assistance program, so they'll deal with it. So we don't need to think about it. Like and give yet, it to somebody else. Yes. I'll abdicate responsibility, basically, mm. um, which is one of the big pitfalls that organizations um, actually fall into. So yeah. how do you go about changing that? conversation or that viewpoint then if you do and run into uh, leadership um you mm. know like the one i mentioned or um i think you said it was the firefighters service that are uh, yeah uh, I think the word you use is demanding sometimes you know with yeah. information <laughs> you know and, and when i'm knocking firefighters uh, just so nobody no, no, and I, I, it, it was that. it was police firearms officers over, over ah, here what in the uk okay. so and we're they're not all armed, but the ones who are armed over here are quite rufty tufty. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I'm not, I'm not denigrating them all. They're a lovely, lovely group of people, but they're, they're a tough crowd. So how, so then how do you get them to come around to see different? What, how do we phrase that conversation? It's actually, it's quite simple. We, we just educate them. We just educate them in a really clear, simple way of actually mental health is not this particular crisis and and trauma. It's not this vague, ambiguous, woolly thing. It's very cut and dried. It's very simple. You know, we look at how people respond in, in in a traumatic event and we can predict lots of behavior. We can predict the kind of things that will help. And when we can educate them like that, and it makes sense to them, and they can relate it to themselves and their loved ones, then they buy in. They, they get it. It's getting in front of people to actually give them that information, which is, as I say, this is why I'm passionate about just talking. I love talk trauma all day uh, because people, when they get it and you take the fear away and you break down the, the stereotypes uh, around it, it is actually quite simple. I, I, I'm just curious. Uh, is it really taking the fear away or is it getting them to actually see what their fear is? It, it is can there a be difference? both. It can be both, depending on what the fear relates to. If the fear is of the unknown, then let's make it known in simple ways. Let's not wrap it all up into, you know, sort of, big words and neuroscience, let's keep it nice and simple because that's possible. If it's fear about, you know, their own avoidance, again, that's about making them feel as though, it's, you know, for me, it's about saying, actually, I'm, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm a safe pair of hands. 
and giving them that confidence that actually nothing bad's going to happen. Because there's a fear, you know, of there's fear of people like me. <laughs> um, people think that I'm, I'm going to make them cry. I'm going to reveal their hidden thoughts. Um, I'm going to section, uh, you know, uh, section them, which is sort of make make them um, have to go into a, a contained hospital. Um, or I'm going to give them medication. I'm going to drug them. And again, these are so ingrained in people through the media, stereotypes, you know, dramas, television. Mm-hmm. But actually, sometimes they just need to know that the people who are going to help the organization, you know, whether that's me, whether it's somebody else, are just normal people. They're pragmatic, they're practical, and they're not frightening. And- I guess as you were mentioning that, it's kind of, just treat everyone or talk to everyone on the same level. Yes. Forget about yeah. the CIO and the president. Yeah. You know, those titles mean nothing no. because you take all that away and mm. it's just window dressing. You're still the person who feels mm. exactly the same way if you're a president of the organization as someone who just walked in the door who's going mm. to be dusting shelves. Yes. You, you have the exact same feelings. Yes. Yeah. You're a human being. Yeah, and I, and I know some of them that might feel like a little bit of a stretch, but they are they're all, <laughs> they're all human beings, and everybody has got anxieties and fears and hopes and dreams, uh, and misunderstandings and stereotypes, and it's just about saying actually, we're all human, so we we'll, we we will look at how how do we then communicate with this human being who is here in front of me, how how do we get that message across. Well, great. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Um, I told you before we started recording that, uh, you know, I would ask questions as we go along and Mm -hmm. we haven't even touched our agenda yet (laughs) (laughs) after all of this. (laughs) So thank you very much. I can talk trauma. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently I can ask, uh, you know, lots of questions too about it. (laughs) But this is great. Um, End of our first segment. We are talking with Dr. Liz Royal today on building emotional resilience and creating effective human recovery processes for crisis situations. And we will be right back. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Segment two today, we are talking with Dr. Liz Royal (laughs) about building emotional resilience and creating effective human recovery processes for crisis situations. Um, Dr. Liz, 
great first segment there. Lots of stuff. And as I said at the end, we didn't even touch on our agenda yet. So <laughs> lots of good information here. Um, I'd like to start off segment two, um, taking the next step that um, there, <clears throat> because we talked about staff and everybody um, kind of being the same, we're all human. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some strategies that organizations can uh, leverage to support staff. And I know in your speak, you had uh, your speech, you had a couple of, uh, um, you called them the three R's, I believe it was. So can you talk about those? Okay, yep. Yeah. Uh, so the three R's are a, a little model by Kaminsky, um, which is the resistance, resilience and recovery. And for me, it, it's, it's a really nice way of looking at how do we make the most effective strategy um, for our organization. So resistance is the ability to encounter a really dif- difficult or traumatic event and actually not be affected by it. Resilience is about the bounce back, so being affected, but then the bounce back. And recovery is when there's been a bigger impact and then how we move on. So the, the way I quite often like to describe it to people is if you imagine you've got medical staff in an, an acute uh, environment, so the ER, emergency room, accident and emergency, and the kind of things that they deal with day in, day out, most people would find really difficult. You know, if they just put potentially me or you in that setting and said, right, just, you know, get on with what needs doing, I think we'd both find it quite traumatic. And yet they do this day in, and this is their resistance. And that comes from having a a sense of, I know what I'm doing. I've got a job to do, so I can focus on that. I've got people around me in my team who are supportive and we're working as a team. Hopefully the organization supports me and I've got this sense of efficacy. And that is really protective. That's the resistance that allows them to do that. Now, having said that, occasionally there'll be a really difficult time, you know, difficult shift, difficult day or night. Uh, Something happens and they feel like, oh, that, that was a tough one. I'm, I'm going to take mm. a couple of days. I'm going to take a week or so just to process that, just to calm down from it, just to make sense of it. But I, I can do things to help myself. And I've got the team around me who, you know, we recognize it's, yes, this, this feels really bad, but we're resilient. And this is the resilience phase. Now, over and above that, there might be an incident that happens that, really gets under their resilience. It really gets under their body armor, the psychological body armor, and it, it absolutely psychologically floors them. They can't make sense of it. It's going round the head all the time. They just can't move on. They're not settling down. And the, they actually, even a couple of weeks later, four weeks later, months, years later, they've still not recovered from it. And that's the recovery phase when we need to start looking at actually getting more of the psychotherapists, the psychologists working to help that person in the recovery. So what we find is a lot of organizations either don't think about resistance or they just take it for granted. Um, I think we're finding more of them looking at things like leadership and morale. That that is all really helpful. Um, But, you know, making sure that staff feel equipped to do what they do you know, new staff particularly. Um, So checking that we've got as much resistance in place. Then making sure that we work with with the resilience, giving people the skills that they can recognize, oh, actually, that did bother me. And what can I do to help myself? And what can I do to help my colleagues? And what can my family do to support me? That tends to be missing and organizations just go straight to, oh, you need you need to get the counselors in, you need to get the therapists, which is the recovery phase. So if you think about almost like a funnel, where you're funneling people through according to the need, we're just saying to everybody, oh, just go right the way through and you know, get the top level of care, even if you you don't you don't need it. Or, and, and, and what people will think is, well, well, I don't think I need that. So they, don't, they won't get anything. 
And so that looking at it in the resistance, resilience, recovery framework means that we're, we're providing that continuum of care, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I have a couple of questions okay. uh, based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of times uh, about team. Mm. How, how, uh, how much contribution is there to emotional resilience and, and um, using the resistance, resilience, recovery phase is mm. team, having a work colleague or a friend mm. or a family member or somebody to, to talk to? How important is that? It, it's I, huge. I would, it seems yeah. it was important. Yeah, it, it, it's huge. I mean, if you think about it, you spend more time with the people at work quite often than you do with family. And if they're not good relationships and you don't feel supported, then, you know, that's really isolating. But also our colleagues, our peers are sometimes the ones who actually say to us, are you okay? You don't seem yourself. They pick up sometimes on things that we've been denying or we've been avoiding. And, and so they, they can make a massive amount of difference um, in terms of how safe we feel in the workplace, emotionally. But the other side of it is, is you know, when we go home, our family, our support networks outside of work can have a big impact as well. And quite often we don't do anything to help them to help somebody who's been psychologically hurt at work. And so somebody might come home and this is a a really, a really classic example. Um, Somebody who I I was speaking to a couple of years ago and and he'd been through a a terror attack at work and he'd been, he he had post-traumatic stress disorder from it and he'd been really quite badly affected. But he said to him, he said, do you know, one of the hardest things was my mom kept asking, she kept coming to me and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to help, how to help you. And he said her pain and her helplessness actually was really, really difficult for him. And mm-hmm. if we can just give people some simple advice of how do you help your loved ones? You know, how do you help the people around you? That kind of dynamic is less likely to happen. You know, she she would have been she would have been traumatized by the fact that she couldn't help her child. You know, grown up mm. child, but still a child. And and he so so you've got this sort of really dy- horrible dynamic where people, for the lack the lack of education, are in very very difficult dark places. And mm. so so we can make a big difference just by saying to people. If, you're, if you want to help that person, these are some simple tips to help you do it. And just taking, giving them that reassurance and taking that fear away. But also, these are the signs to watch out for. And these are the things that you do need to worry about and involve a mental health professional. And that's particularly pertinent with things like suicide. You know, that people, you know, don't know whether, you know, what to say, if they, if they suspect that somebody's feeling so low. So it is just about giving them that education that they can be helpful because we're surrounded by people who want to help us at times like that. But with uh, trauma and crisis, the natural response is to withdraw and to disconnect. And that's part of the, the human survival response. So we've got to try and engage people. I, I talked with someone uh, a long time ago, and they said one of the, uh, and I'm just kind of curious to, to your uh, mm-hmm. thoughts here. They said one of the best things you can just do in those kind of situations is just say, I'm here for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. But you'd be surprised how many people don't feel able to say that or don't know how to follow it up. If that person does start to talk, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or doesn't know how to, um, you know, what kind of things they could suggest. Sometimes there's some simple actions that people can take to encourage them in their own recovery, you know, can make a big difference. It's not all about talking. So talking, it, it has its place. But in the very early days, talking too much can actually be quite harmful. It can mm-hmm. stop the memories from actually being processed and, and filed away. The other question that came to mind is, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think, if, if I'm understanding correctly, I don't think it's right that we treat everybody the same. 
everyone's going to feel differently, yeah. even if the situation might be the same. Yes. They're going to feel different because your, yeah. your point you made earlier on is uh, a lot of organizations will just say, we'll, we'll activate our employee assistance program and push everybody yeah. there. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of, well, then you're just kind of treating everybody the same. Mm. But yeah. in, in an office, you can have an active shooter. You can have mm. uh, a, um, a, you know, an envelope with suspicious powder in it. You can have mm. a, you know, a fire, a flood. Uh, you can have a, someone mm. call in with a bomb threat. And that's going to traumatize yeah. people uh, mm. overall. You know, and mm. you've got hopefully plans and response plans in place yeah. for some of that stuff. But people are still going to be traumatized by it on different in different ways. Mm. Yeah, and, and equally, some people may not be. And this is one of the other things that, you know, we, they may, they, it's, it's a lot of it's down to interpretation. There are so many complex factors as to why something would affect an individual. And, but that, that person who's not affected that time may be feeling helpless around the others, may be feeling out of step. Because everyone is saying to them, you must be really, you know, affected by this. And they're thinking, mm-hmm. actually, no, I'm okay. And so they then start to feel like, well, there's some, you know, there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm a psychopath. You know, all these, these kind of things I've heard, you know. <laughs> and, and then, so, so for, the, for the sake of having education about, you know, the common reactions and, and give them a role you know, give them a role in helping their colleagues, bring the team together um, and and let people understand about different ways of reacting. So you might have somebody who wants to talk and you might have somebody who wants to withdraw. And if they don't understand that each of those coping strategies is absolutely fine, you can find that they're, they're then at odds with each other and you've got some kind of tension within the team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, understanding those kind of things is important. You you got me thinking about how uh, different people respond differently mm-hmm. and how you talk with people, uh, you know, and some people, how they respond in situations. They just you know, go with the flow or they're mm-hmm. hiding how they feel or like you mm-hmm. said, you know, shouldn't I be feeling like these other people? Yeah. It got me yeah. thinking about people that are on um, some of those crisis management teams and leadership, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're, it's got to be a challenge for them because they are going to be feeling some of those same feelings as mm-hmm. everyone else feels, Yeah, but they have to, in a way, uh, I, I don't think the right word is hide, you know, mm-hmm. their, their fears, but they have to step above them because mm-hmm. they have to provide comfort to others. That's got to be a challenge too. It is. And, you, you know, one of the, the things working with major incidents is your, your, your sort of your high level staff who are actually dealing with everything, whether it's your C-suite or your, your, your gold and um, silver controls, they have to get on with the job. So in some ways that is protective, that they're focusing on the job, they're focusing on what they can do. But then afterwards, it, it can be something that really hits them. And that's when all the support is gone. And, you know, they, they, they are then feeling as though they can't ask for any support. You know, they should be the strong ones or they weren't directly involved. So when you're looking at strategy, it's always, always looking about actually, it's not just about people who are directly impacted. It's looking at the ripple effect of, you, you know, throwing a stone into the water. Where is that ripple effect going and how do I make sure that everybody has got what they need at the level they need it and at the time they need it? And it's making sure that that, that is all covered in your strategy. I, I like uh, what you just mentioned, the ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Um, during your session at BCI, I was sitting at the table with your business partner. Okay. <laughs> so, um, And she, I, I want to show the, the graphic because uh, as I was talking with her, Mm-hmm. She she showed, and I don't know if you can see the uh, mm-hmm. yeah. your, your look here, and then the ripples uh, yeah. look how that impacts different uh, groups and stakeholders, yes. yeah, you know, yeah. and and leadership who are uh, you know on a crisis management team have to do mm. that as well, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and and I think it's about looking at what 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 are their needs? What are their needs now? What are their needs in the unfolding day? Because the ripple carries on rippling 
Um, mm-hmm. And and sometimes what all they need is somebody to check in and say, you know, actually, how are you doing? Um, and are you, while she's dealing with this incident, are you eating? Are you having some downtime? Have you got somebody to talk to? Can you get some exercise in place just to help burn off some of these, you know, stress hormones, you know, and just being very practical. And then when they come to the end of actually they've dealt with it, okay, now what? Now what do you need? What do you need to make sense of this? What do you need to move on from it? And, you know, uh, actually, you know, sort of recover from it. Mm-hmm. I, I like uh, how how um, you mentioned you know the with the ripple effects that people that are in leadership you know they have to look at some of this stuff too they they can't mm. turn it off so to speak mm. and yeah. even though they may step up and show leadership and and strength that doesn't yeah. mean that she's not going to feel something later on yeah. when reality sets in that's it yeah that they, they, they are still human surprisingly yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, are, they, are, they are still they are still human and they will be impacted in different ways and you might have one person who thinks actually do you know that was a really challenging situation but i did a good job and i'm proud of what i did there and they come through that and you know it, it with that sense but you may get somebody else who for many many different reasons they may have done this many times before but this particular one has just got under the surface a little bit mm-hmm. and when they think about it now still feels quite upsetting they avoid thinking about it so it's suppressed but yeah. suppressed emotions have a habit of leaking out and and that doesn't tend to be a healthy thing. They can leak out in physical symptoms. They can leak out in relationship breakdowns, alcohol abuse, um, and just a poor quality of life. And that's not what we want, you know, for anybody. Yeah. On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking with Dr. Liz Royal today on building emotional resilience and creating effective human recovery processes for crisis situations. And we will be right back. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more, not just in it and profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. 
Welcome back. Today we are talking with Dr. Liz Royal. Uh, Dr. Liz, great stuff in the, the first two segments. Now, th this segment, I'm wondering if we could uh, kind of look at some areas that cause some of our uh, problems. You you identified them in your presentation as areas of risk that we mm -hmm. need to consider. Can you talk about these areas? Yeah. Um, so areas of risk, I think people tend to think of the big incidents, you know, active shooter, uh, natural disaster, you know, a, a major incident. And they are out there. You know, I've, I've dealt with many, many major incidents, of lots of different kinds, uh, you know, man-made, unnatural. Um, they are big, big shocking events. They affect a lot of people. They, they have the potential for overwhelming resources, uh, including support resources. And so areas of risk, I think organizations are better at actually thinking, oh, yes, well, you know, that might happen to us. You know, we, we, we um, have a history of earthquakes or landslides or we've, we've got a major transport hub that, that it feels a little bit more like a risk assessment, you know, proper risk assessment. Um, but nowadays, nobody can actually discount uh, an act of terror. Um, an active shooter. So a, a big incident has a lot of complexities and a lot of challenges, really needs good preparation. If we prepare well for it, then we should have a response that deals with the human side of things that actually it just gets into effect and gets that first level of care out there and starts looking at a, a longer term strategy. So in some ways, that, that is easier for organizations to get their heads around. Mm. The other part that they don't always think about is what I would call occupational trauma. So some occupational roles are at risk of coming across distressing incidents in the workplace just because of the work they do. So that could be people like um, cash in transit drivers, you know, delivering money to banks, um, bank clerks, um, people in retail, um, you know, having sort of abuse and, and assaults, violence, people who work with heavy machinery, work in risky environments. And what I would say to people is, you know, as part of your risk assessment for a job, do you consider whether the, there is a risk of, for mental health from that point of view. And not, not just thinking about what's a stressful job, but thinking, you know, is there a risk of crisis and trauma? Because that requires slightly different handling. So we might find that we're, um, we're likely to have a big incident. We're likely to have just sort of um, robberies, assaults, accidents as part of our job. Um, but we can also have what's called cumulative trauma. So one of the things that people don't always look out for is the um, the steady drip, drip effect of, you know, dealing with something difficult. It might not be a big incident, but something difficult every day, day in, day out. And then we've got the straw that breaks the camel's back. So in, mm. in retail, you know, you might find that somebody's being abused on a, a daily basis. Uh, I mean, the, the facts, the, the statistics for violence in the retail sector are, are absolutely appalling. You know, the people are, are being, they are being abused every day. And then it can be just, you know, it's chipping away at your resilience and then one thing happens and you, you might not even think it's a big thing, but that person then, that's the bucket overflows. It's interesting you mentioned that in, in when I was a, a teenager, 16, 17, uh, I worked in a corner store uh, mm. and uh, the abuse I got, mm. you know, price is too high. Why don't you carry this kind of brand? Yeah. And, you know, why are just all kinds of things, you know, would be sworn at sometimes or yeah. a couple of times even threatened. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. And it's I, I, I don't think I could ever go back to that. No, because no, of what you just described, you know, yeah, yeah, you and, and it was it, building, and I went, I, I don't want to go there anymore. That's it. So, so in the you know the retailer, if they're, if they're looking at supporting you, they may 
think, oh, well, you, you, you know, there's been a robbery, we'll support you. But they may be oblivious to that kind of erosion of, of, of your well-being over time because of these low level, you know, which they add up. And, and yeah, that they are very difficult. The other side, um, the other thing that's quite often missed is vicarious trauma. So vicarious trauma is where we're not necessarily directly in, you know, impacted. We're not what you might call the victim, but we're around that. So we might be a first responder. We might be um, a CCTV operator who's watching it. And, you know, that, that, that level of exposure, looking at an accident or somebody who's been killed, might be an investigator. You know, many organizations have investigative teams that come in after an incident and they put the support in place for the staff involved. But they forget about that erosion of, you know, people who are dealing with this day in, day out, dealing with the worst kind of things that people do to each other. Mm -hmm. Admin staff, you know, there's the secretary who's typing up notes about, uh, you know, child sex abuse cases, lawyers, you know, that kind of vicarious trauma. Um, is something that really needs to be flagged up on the risk. When you're doing a risk assessment, you know, are these staff, are these particular roles in my organisation vulnerable to that? And if so, we need to put something proactive in place and we need to just have that, as we would any other risk, mitigate mm. it. And finally, you'll get organisations who say, well, yeah, we're all right, nothing ever happens around here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lovely place to work and, you know, it's, it's nice things. Um but then, uh, you know, we, we've got a lovely, a lovely close-knit team. We're like family. Uh, and then one of the team is killed or dies suddenly. And the whole team is hit by that. So you, you've got to look at, actually, nobody is immune. Um, and just setting out your risks, working out what are my risks, and then what do I need to put in place to mitigate those risks? That is a key place to start with. You've got me thinking of um, you're de dealing with some of the, because you mentioned you know different ways of dealing with this. It got me thinking of Maslow's hierarchy. Mm. Does that come into play on how to deal with some of these traumas that people experience? Because I, I know at the basic level, make someone feel, um, uh, and I'm probably not using the right words here, uh, your, your basic security, you're safe, you know, and, and then move up, you know, for, is, is, do you use that kind of a model to help people through some of these things? It, it's not, I, I wouldn't use that model per se, it fits, but it's, it's mm -hmm. my, the, the model I, I tend to use is, is explaining about human survival response, but it does fit in terms of stepping back from it. Um, and it, it fits in the very, very early hours, um, you know, as we're going through, as you say, very first layer, people need to feel safe. They need the physiological survival needs. And, you know, we, we can't start looking at emotional responses if somebody is still in danger. Um, there was a huge uh, criticism after after 9-11 where mental health professionals were actually going, speaking to first responders at the scene where they were working and, and asking them how they were, basically dismantling all the defences that were in place, you know, unintentionally. So we've got to look at those basic needs, you know, is, some, is, the, is the incident over? For now, you know, it might be that there's an ongoing thing, but have they reached a place of safety? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, are, are they are they injured? Are they cold? Are they hungry? Are they, you know, wet? We've got to make sure that all of those needs are met before we even start looking at, you know, how are they? Um, so, so, yes, it, it, it does come in. Um, but then if you also look at, if we're going higher up, we're looking at, um, you know, after safety needs, we're looking at connection. That is so important in those early hours. We feel safe if we've got people around us who we trust. And, you know, that, that, that is something that organizations can, can look at. How do we almost throw our arms around our, our teams, our people and make them feel as though we've got them mm -hmm. and, that that's really important and the opposite to that is sending people home straight away immediately 
and just disconnecting them from all that peer support or blaming. So, you know, all of these things are, are really important um, for, for us to, to get into that headspace before we can start looking at okay, what, what do people need. Well, we've only got a few minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts or uh, points you'd like to convey uh, you know, for a minute or two? I think probably two, two things that I find really important are no matter how good your support processes are, you can have the best ones in the world. If you don't address stigma and people don't access the services, then first of all, you're wasting your money. And secondly, you're not helping them. So always look in my strategy, you know, how am I making these services accessible? If you've got people who work shifts or they've got childcare responsibilities or they work remotely, how are they going to access services? You know, how, how do we say things like, you know, oh, do you need support? Do you need help? You know, that for a lot of people will be like, oh, no, no, I, I don't, don't, I don't feel like that. Um, so I think education, but educate right through the community because the community heals itself. That is the role of empowering. And when we can do that, we've got more chance of building resilience for the next crisis because there's always a next crisis. So how do we come through this stronger rather than coming through and feeling damaged? That There are issues that we need to build into the strategy. Well, on that, we've come to the end of our show. Okay. Dr. Liz, thank you so much. I thought this was a fantastic uh, um, discussion. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer in uh, you know, addressing the people concerns, and I see too much of organizations and communities wanting to make sure they have the plan. And, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned tick boxes and things like that, having all that in place, but without the proper conversations about people, those plans will eventually fall apart. They'll mean nothing. Yeah. Uh, it, to me, that that's what mm-hmm. will happen. Yeah. You know, and uh, so I, I really enjoyed this, and I, I hope a lot of uh, professionals, business continuity, resilience, or crisis management leadership in general really take to heart that you've got to address people. Mm. You know, and, and it's not just the upfront, but it's also the after care as mm. well and, and being observant and knowledgeable about mm. what's happening to themselves and the others other people around them so i really enjoyed this thank you very thank much you. it's been a pleasure thank you and on that note we've come to the end everybody watching and listening stay prepared everybody thank you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.